Good morning, everyone. Um, I love that uh, choice, Earl, of community prayer. And, and if you look at Matthew 25, the uh, scripture that he's uh, quoted from, it's talking about uh, believers helping other believers. And when believers help other believers who are sick, naked, poor, in prison, etc., um, it's like you're helping Jesus because the Jesus in you through the Holy Spirit is helping the Jesus in another believer through the Holy Spirit. And I think about our church, um, how many people, uh, over two dozen people that we have helped over uh, since COVID started, uh, believers in our community with the Galatians chapter 6, verse 9 and 10 fund, which you guys have contributed to and help people who are unemployed, uh, who were hard. Um, hit financially and just in need, and, and we've helped over two dozen people and families. Fantastic! I think of you guys and how you minister to one another. Um, all the prayer chain texts and and serving when people are going through personal crises. Um, that's helping the poor, you know, in the body of Christ as well. So um, uh, you're going to be commended for that. And also, I, I was thinking how um, how Norm was mentioning. That there was a 20 or so people that came out to the Artesia Street Fair uh, yesterday, and uh, we're doing outreach to our Cerritos location. I actually um, went onto Anita's uh, Instagram, and she posted some pictures of yesterday. It was just a beautiful thing. All the people coming to our booth, um, I can't imagine how many hundreds of people we interacted with. Uh, but this in our series, um, Life, that is going through First, Second, and Third John in the New Testament. And as we go through this series, we've been asking ourselves one central question every single week. It's the same question every week, and it is this question. How do we know that we have the eternal life of Jesus Christ? How do we have assurance that we who have professed faith in Jesus Christ, that his eternal life, both now and the promise of eternity, has in fact come to us. Uh, the Apostle John wrote 1 John to believers in Jesus so that they could know that they have eternal life. He says that specifically in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. He said, for those of you who believe in the Son of God, uh, may you know that you have eternal life. And so in the past several weeks, uh, we've been looking at certain signs, tests, principles, certain assurances that John has given to us uh, in the first couple of chapters of how we can know that we have the eternal life of Jesus Christ in us. And just for recap, um, some of the signs, tests, principles, and assurances we John has talked about so far is he has said, if you profess to know Jesus Christ and you find yourself voluntarily confessing your need for the atoning sacrifice of Christ on the cross, his crucifixion and subsequent resurrection, if you feel that you need, you see yourself as a sinner who needed the atoning sacrificial work of Christ on the cross to die for your sins, to receive the wrath of God, the judgment of God on his behalf or, or on him for your behalf, and you, you know that you need that, that propitiation, that appeasement for your sin, uh, that is a sign that the eternal life of Jesus does indeed live within you. Not all people see themselves as sinners. Not all people think that God can judge them. Not all people think that uh, they need the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Number one. Number two, John has been talking about the importance of, if you have the eternal life of Jesus Christ in you, 
you find yourself wanting to obey the commands of Jesus. Not because you feel like, you know, God will hate me if I don't, or that I won't go to heaven if I don't, but you find yourself just naturally gravitating towards away from saying, I don't want myself to be Lord. I don't want Satan to be Lord. I don't want my girlfriend, my boyfriend, money to be Lord. Uh, I don't want to obey their commands, ultimately. I, I choose to voluntarily say, the one who is Lord, the one who has the right uh, for me to follow their commands, is the Lord. And a third major test assurance principle um, of assurance of eternal life in our lives that John's been talking about is, do we also find ourselves being drawn to loving fellowship with God and Jesus and God's people? You're here. I'm here. Why? We're not here because, you know, our football game wasn't on Sunday morning. We're not here because just to see, you know, friends. We're here because there is something and which geopolitical regions in the world will have power in the future. Um, there has been a reset in uh, human beings' relationship to technology. In the 20th century, we thought technology, um, our, our dystopian vision of the future would have been like the Matrix or the Terminator, where machines are going to, that we create will come to destroy us and take us over and use us for their own purposes. And what we realize now in the 21st century is that's probably not going to happen anytime soon. Um, or at least what will happen before that is our future will look less like the Matrix and Terminator and much more like Ready Player One. Or much more like um, a movie like Lucy, where Ready Player One, we're entering into the merging of technology and the metaverse. Or Lucy, where we are kind of merging, where our, our um, wearable technology is becoming our embedded technology. Uh, we were just driving here this morning, and I saw a billboard, a sign on a bus just right off uh, as, as we turned on to vignettes. And it said, um, it was basically saying, the new uh, Discovery of Talent show is not The Voice. It's not American Idol. It's this show on Fox where the musicians will compete against one another with their avatars. And it's a whole new world. It's a reset world. And in this reset world, the world is going to become more sophisticated in its um, strategies to get you to love it, not less sophisticated. It'll be a utopian world that's put before you that'll be more seductive, more deceptive, and more enticing for you to get to love it more than loving God. And that's the 21st century reset world in which we are stepping into. In the Bible, there are many examples, many men who uh, look at Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes. And he said, you know, enjoy your work. Enjoy your life. Enjoy your food. All the short days of your life. So there's a sense of enjoyment of this natural, of this physical world. You even have Jesus saying that God so loved people in the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So there is a sense that when we look at nature, when we look at the, the, some of the normal created things, when we look at people in general, we, that we, we love these things. We, we, they're actually held up in scripture as important. But 
when you look overall at how the Bible evaluates the spirituality of the world, <clears throat> the spiritual systems and thoughts and beliefs of the world, the Bible does not speak that highly. It speaks very darkly about the spirituality of the world. Paul said in Romans 12 that the world is seeking spiritually to conform you to its pattern of thinking, to drive you away from the will of God. Paul said in Colossians chapter 2 that the world is full of philosophies, empty deceit, human traditions that are energized by evil spirits. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2 that Satan is at work through the sons of disobedience, through every unbeliever, Satan who follows um, not the Lord, essentially follows Satan. The apostle John said in 1 John chapter 3 and 1 John chapter 4 that the world hates believers, that the world is full of false prophets and antichrists. The apostle Jude said in Jude 19 that the world comes to infiltrate the church and creates divisions within the church. Worldliness comes into the church to create divisions. The Bible does not speak positively about the spirituality of the world. And so today, we're going to look at a passage in 1 John chapter 2 that talks about loving the world more than loving God. And we're going to be asking ourselves the question of, what does it actually look like to love the world in our context? And, um, and, and how can we be filled with God's love? You understand that there's no spiritually neutral gear to the human spirit, don't you? If you're not worshiping God, you're worshiping something else. If you're not loving God, you're loving something else. There's no spiritually neutral middle ground. You're always loving something. You're always idolizing something. And the best way to um, get rid of an old, unhealthy spiritual passion is to do what? To replace it with a new spiritually healthy passion. It is not simply just to stop loving the world. We have to replace that by being filled with God's love. And so today we're going to look at this passage, our next passage in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 through 17. Let's all stand for the reading of God's word now. Just a few short verses. In 1 John chapter 2, <coughs> verse 15 through 17. The Apostle John's writing from Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey. And he's writing as an old man, maybe in his late 80s, early 90s. And he's speaking as one who has a lifetime of experience, um, uh, maybe six decades or so as a Christian, and he says this in his evaluation of the spirituality of the world. He says, verse 15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let's pray together. <clears throat> and that is our prayer this morning, Lord, that we who follow the Son of God may do the will of God and thus abide forever in your life. We confess this morning, every one of us, um, areas of our lives where in moments of weakness and sin, 
Uh, we have loved the things of the world more than you. But that is not who we are as saints, Lord. We are reminded this morning, you have called us saints in Christ Jesus. And so this morning, especially as we receive communion, we want to cast away that old return to the old man and to live out of the new man in Christ that you will remind us of this morning so that we may continue to have victory in our walks uh, over the forces of a dark world in Christ. Amen. Uh, you can have a seat. Thank you. So let's look at our passage. First John chapter 2, verse 15 through 17. John says in verse 15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now remember, John is writing First John, and John is very much um, uh, writing in terms of contrasts. You have love or you have hate. You're living in the light or the darkness. You're living the truth or the lie. You have life or death. And now he's talking about you either love the world or you don't have the love of the Father in you. And he's really just giving us two options. What dominates our thinking? What dominates our allegiance? Is it a love of the spirituality of the world? Or is it a love of God? Translation, if I could get a, give a loose translation of verse 15, uh, I think John would be saying something like this. Do not love the riches, the fame, the pleasure, the idols, the people, the power of the world more than me. Do not love the riches, fame, pleasure, idols, pe- people, power of the world more than me. We all fall into temptation at times, but John is forcing us to ask the question, when I look at the overall pattern of my spiritual walk, which do I love more? Let me even uh, bring it down in a more simple way. If you're married and you're a man, uh, your your wife might turn to you and say something like this. Do not love other women. If you love other women, my love is not in you. I think every woman would agree with that. You would look at your man and say, you know, my man might have moments of weakness as I do or fall into certain temptations at times, uh, perhaps like I do, maybe in different ways. But overall, I know that the man I'm married to loves me more than his moments of weakness where he might think or the wrong thing or whatever, other women. Because if your husband loves other women more than he loves you, then your love is not in him. Another way of saying it, if you're into sports, you would say, do not love the sports team of Northern California. Because being in Los Angeles, if you love the sports teams of Northern California, if you love the Warriors, if you love the Giants, if you love the 49ers, then the love of the Dodgers and the Rams and the Lakers is not in you. Everyone who's in sports understands that. If you live in Boston, you would say, do not love the Yankees. For the love of the Red Sox is not in you. 
Nobody is a fan of Boston and the Yankees at the same time. And so that you start to get the sense of what John is saying in terms of ultimate, ultimate um, choices. The writers and the authors, the, the, the people of the New Testament understood this. They, they would have seen people who made ultimate spiritual choices of loving the world more than loving God. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus encounters a rich man, a rich young ruler. Maybe he was a ruler of the synagogue or so, um, high priest or something. Uh, and uh, Jesus turns to him and he says, if you want to follow me, take all your riches, that is your idol, sell it, give it to the poor and follow me. And, and you know the story, the rich man walked away. And he didn't follow Jesus because he had great riches. Now, there were other rich Christians that became followers of Jesus. Nicodemus was a rich Christian. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea, those guys took the body of, of Christ um, down from the cross. And they, they wanted his body. Um, and they were rich. So it wasn't necessarily being rich that was wrong. It was that the rich man loved the world more than Christ. And Christ made him make a decision. And he walked away. You have another example in Acts chapter 8. Peter is encountered by a man named Simon the Sorcerer. And Simon the Sorcerer is seeing the apostles heal people by laying their hands on them and praying. And Simon the Sorcerer was a magician. And he said, um, let me give you money, apostles, because I want this gift of the Holy Spirit so that I too may be able to heal others. And Peter says, you know, may you perish, you and your silver, because you thought the gift of God could be bought with money. Simon the Sorcerer uh, was an unbeliever. And so... He was one who chose the world over the kingdom. In James chapter 4, the apostle James says, friendship with the world is enmity with God. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, the apostle Paul talks about a man named Demas. Demas was for a time a ministry partner with Paul. And uh, at one point in, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says, Demas, who is in love with the world, deserted me and went to Thessalonica. Meaning what? Paul had this ministry companion named Demas, who was a professing follower. And at one point, Demas not only left Paul in the ministry, but the implication is that he left Christ, the work of Christ, and he went to go to a city like Thessalonica, a seaside town that was very worldly. Loved the world more than God, ultimate choices. And I want you to notice something in verse 15. He says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, sometimes when we read that, we think, well, I just don't want to love the world. I just need to love God. Okay, And that's true. Sometimes we just have to make a volitional choice to walk away from the things of the world to love God. True. But notice when he's, he's saying, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You see... Moving away from the ultimate choice of loving the world really begins not with your choice to love God. It begins with God's love being in you to then move you to make the choice to love God. Every step of faith that we make, every sacrifice of God that we make is initiated by God first. So the real question we have here is not if I'm loving the world, do I just need to start, start loving God more? That's an outcome. 
But the source of this is, is the love of God in you? Certainly as a believer, you have that, but it might be quenched, it might be grieved by our sin. So what we need to do is ask ourselves the question of what does it look like to have the love of God in us? How can we get to that place? How can we get to the place to where if we find, even as believers, ourselves being preoccupied with the love of the world, how can we get the place where we say, you know what, I want to um, submit myself anew to the presence, the love, the life of God, so that I may have the grace and the power to, to not love the world over God anymore. Um, I'm going to give you some examples. Number one, get around worldly people. When you get around worldly people who are greedy, who are lustful, who are angry people, who are arrogant, who are foolish, when you get around worldly, unbelieving people who embrace wickedness, what happens for you as a believer is you see clearly what the world does to a human being. And you know what? Sometimes the problem with us as Christians, some of you, you just need to be in more Christian community. That's the bottom line. Because you need to be healed, spurred on towards loving good works. But for others of you, you need to be reminded of what the world is like. Of what happens to the human heart when the love of God is not in people. And when you truly get around people who are greedy, arrogant, lustful, angry, and foolish, if you are indeed a follower of Jesus Christ, what will happen is you will be reminded of why we need to love God more than the world. When you get around people who are liars, what happens is the following. You step into those environments and step one, your conscience is bothered. If you're truly a follower of Jesus Christ, when you step into an environment of darkness, there's, the conscience is a, the God-given uh, smoke alarm system for the human soul. It is not something through which God speaks to you through. It is simply a warning system. Think like a smoke alarm. It's only there when there's a problem. The smoke alarm is only as good as the batteries that work in it. And so your conscience is a warning system against evil, but it's only as, as functioning properly as it has the right energy of batteries in there, which means your conscience being biblically informed. You've got to have a biblically informed conscience for it to work properly. And so number one, you get around that environment and your conscience will start to bother you. This, this is not right. This is not how life should be. I don't sense that God is here. I don't know if I should be here. And then after your conscience is bothered, you will start to feel hopelessness. You will start to look at these people and, and, and who are living apart from God and say, you know what? They may have a name, money, fame. They may look good or, or have smiles on, on their mouths. But there's a real depth of spiritual hopelessness in their life. And God, the Holy Spirit of truth, will reveal that to you. And your conscience will be bothered. 
you'll, you'll be aware of the hopelessness. And thirdly, you will long for righteousness. You will say, no, no, th- 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 I don't want this for my life. I do not want this for my life. I want the righteousness of God. I want to be filled with the love of God. And I am reminded by seeing the opposite of the importance of that. So you get around worldly people. And that's how God will work through your life. A second example of how you can be reminded of the love of God in you, or your need for it, is you see worldliness in the church. A lot of you have visited different churches throughout your life. I have too. Um, I've been part of really good churches. I think City Bible Church is a really good church. But I've been to other really good churches. And you have too. My guess is that many of you have been to other churches where the worldliness, the love of the world, has come into the church to quench the love of God in the church. What does that look like? What does it look like when you see worldliness creep into the life of the church to grieve and to quench the love of God in the church. It looks like this. You're part of a church. And the number one, the definition of who is embraced in the family of God, who is embraced as the true community of God, the definition of who's in and who's out at the church is not determined by who has submitted their life to Jesus Christ. But instead, worldliness creeps into the church, and we, we all have social radar. We all, we, you can walk into a room, and you and I can tell if we're in or out in that particular room. It takes us 30 seconds to know. You put us at a wedding. You put yourself at a party, workplace, social setting. You know when you walk into that room within 30 seconds whether you're going to be an in and out or out. Same thing in the church. And when you see worldliness creep into the church, you find community defined in the church not by who's a follower of Christ and who's not, by, but by who plays the same sport or by who has the same rough amount of money as you have or who is the same race as you or who is married and has kids like you or who is single like you. And you see a worldly definition of community in the church. And you should look at that and say, that's not the way it should be. That's not the love of God. What's worldliness in the church? It's where you see people's character not change to become more Christ-like, but you start to sense, and I'm not talking about one person, okay? You start to sense there's a whole profile, massive categories in a church where people are not growing in Christ-likeness year after year. What's happening is they're They're using Christ as a lip service just to get into heaven and simply saying you can barely tell their difference in their life and their worldly pursuits from Christ's call to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. And so you don't see that character transformation. You see worldliness coming to the church. Number three, you start to see worldliness in the church and people loving the world more than the love of God in the church where you start to see people teach in a way that says things like prayer, Bible study, praise, evangelism is not enough. 
No, what you really need in terms of your spirituality is some kind of mystical experience with Christ. And the fundamentals of the faith, reading the word of God, praying, praising the Lord, evangelizing, making those things are talked about less and less. And, um, and worldly ideas of Eastern mystic practices are talked about more and more. Lastly, you can see worldliness come into the church when the church talks less and less about making disciples of Jesus Christ, baptizing them to obey everything he taught, going out into all the world. You see the church talk less and less about that and more and more simply about joining the world in a common commitment to the common good, common love, common works of justice. And those conversations take over the conversation of making disciples of Jesus Christ. And that is when worldliness has crept into the church and the love of God in that church is dying or dead. And so the Apostle John says, do not love the world or things of the world. Love, the love of the Father is not in him. So be reminded, um, that is how we love the world. And outside and inside. But God wants to use even that to warn us through our conscience, a sense of hopelessness and longing for righteousness for those who believe. In verse 16, he says in verse 16, for all that is in the world, the desires of the eyes, uh, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Three things, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. These are the same temptations that Satan came to Jesus with in the desert. Mark chapter 4. Jesus tempted, uh, Satan tempted Jesus with the desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Satan said, after Jesus had fasted for 40 days, he was hungry, and he said, um, command these stones to turn into bread. That was the desires of the flesh. Satan said, I'm going to take you up and show you the kingdoms of the world. Bow down and worship me. And if you do that, then I will give these kingdoms to you. That was the desires of the eye. Desires of the eye. Satan said, throw yourself down from this ridge and God's angels will command God's angels to protect you. You can do that. He was tempting him with the pride of life. And Jesus overcame all that with the word of God. The Apostle John says, what is in the world is the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. It's not from the Father, it's from the world. I was having a conversation um, with Brian uh, this week. We, we ride out on Tuesday night to the Disciple Design Lab um, Bible study on Tuesday nights. And I, we, had a long, we always have these great conversations, right? Uh, I think both of us really enjoy driving out there. We talk about things that are going on in the world, things that are going on in our life. And... Um, it's a time I, I, he and I really look forward to. And so uh, this past, um, or, or, or in a recent uh, time, we were hanging out. Actually, no, we, we, we're out, we were out here this week. We met with Holland and Sebastian at Suda Heroes on First Street, I think on Wednesday or Thursday or something, for lunch. And uh, we had this conversation. Brian, I asked Brian for permission to share this, and he said, yeah, if it can be used for God, then definitely do this. And so... Um, 
It was a fascinating conversation. I'm going to just briefly give you six, six points from our conversation about the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. And these are things that Brian and I talked about. Number one, and, and so you want to be asking, what does this actually look like in real life? So I'm going to give you an illustration through our conversation. Six quick examples. Uh, from our conversation, Brian was saying that, you know, he, he's pursuing a career as a comedian, right? And so he's saying, number one, he can feel the pull of the world to get him to make gradual sacrifices so that his time, as he pursues his career in the industry, the world is asking more and more of his time. Maybe auditions on a Sunday, he doesn't go to church, whatever that might be. And these are gradual sacrifices that the world, is. these desires that are being put in front of him, and how it begins is, it's not like, hey, abandon your God, go worship Satan. It's gradual, small sacrifices. Whenever you hear some Christian, some pastor who commits adultery on their spouse, that is never, ever the result of one decision. That, that, that one decision or, or those major decisions after that, uh, that, that is just the accumulation of hundreds of small sacrifices and decisions that were made on the part of that individual before they came to that decision. And so Brian was talking about he could feel the pull of his career wanting him to make gradual sacrifices away from God. Number two, uh, and you know what? This is not unique to Brian. This is every one of us can relate to this. Okay, This is just an example, but there's not a person that cannot relate to what he's about to what. This number two example is he talked about how the world, he felt the temptations of the world. You know, he goes out to these clubs and you can imagine the temptations that are there. You know, beautiful people, people that are rich, or as my friend Johnny Kirpalani says, they're hood rich. Hood rich means you, you look at the hood of the car and it looks all decked out, but when you open up the engine, they're actually poor. You know, so people look like they're rich, but they're not really rich. Um, but that there's temptation, temptation for fame. And so the second way the desires of the flesh, eyes, and pride of life comes to you is they want, they want to tempt you um, with putting things that are enticing to you in front of you. Number three, we talked about how um, he has had many conversations with many people. He didn't mention any names. And um, where people are struggling with the idea that the world says, if you just get this one thing, your life will be great. If you just found that one person to marry, your problems would be solved. If you just had this amount of money, your problems would be solved. If you could drive this car, have this house, and that is the desire right? It's not bad to want to get married or have a house or have a car. I mean, those things can be spiritually neutral or even good things. But the temptation is when that desire becomes, I'm not, I'm not going to have any kind of life before God unless I get that thing. 
and it's hard. I, I told Brian, you know what? I get it. It's hard. Okay, let's just take the example if you're single. It's hard to say, if you're married, it's hard to say to a single person, you know what? Fulfillment is not found in marriage, etc. And And I think, you know, I, I heard that when I was single. I kind of got that. But it's kind of, it also seems kind of easy for a married person to say that to a single person in some ways. Um, and I think it's hard when you're on the other side of it to truly embrace that as true because you haven't experienced whether that's true or not. And so I think there's a real kind of uh, struggle that goes on with that. Number four, uh, the world. And this is one thing I told Brian. I said, you know what, Brian, you're in a very dangerous place right now. And the reason why you're in a dangerous place is because over the past six months, over the past year, you have grown tremendously spiritually. Okay, you're recommitting yourself to God. You know, you're worshiping God corporately, sometimes twice a week. You're serving the Lord, serving the church in many ways. You're on fire for the Lord. And sometimes that can be the best. That is the best thing for you. But actually, it also can at times put you in a dangerous place. Not that you're to retreat from the direction you're going, but put you in a dangerous place because um, when we move forward with the Lord and start to make great strides, you can bet the enemy will want to bring you back and reel you back. And he will want to intensify the desire of the flesh, eyes, and pride of life, that temptation in your life to get you back. And that is why, I, you know, I tell the elders, whenever you see someone in the church who just kind of goes from not doing anything to just say, I'm going to do everything in the church. Like, I'm, I, I went from zero to 80 miles an hour, like that. Or someone who walks in the door and says, yeah, I've been looking, oh my gosh, this is like the ultimate church. I see nothing wrong with your church. You're amazing. This is exactly the entire church I went looking for. I, I tell them, just be very careful when you see one of those two scenarios. Because we want to hope for the best. But it's kind of like when you meet someone and they're like, you're perfect. I, I, I ignore your flaws and only see your strengths. And, um, you know, you're the one. And, and you say, well, you got to see my bad side too. And um, Satan will want to bring out your bad side. And so you gotta, you got to be careful about that. And be aware of that. But you're going to be wise. You're going to be wise as a serpent and innocent as a dove. Dove. Number five. Desiring the flesh, desires of the eyes, pride of life looks like this. It says, yeah, but Pastor Chris, you, I will be able to navigate. You know, you don't understand. I've, I've had people tell me this. Hey, you know what, bro? Uh, I'm going to walk away from church. You know why? Because I served the Lord when I was younger. I'm going to devote myself to my career. I'm going to make money. And then when I make the big time, just think, Chris, about how much good I could do with all that money, giving it back to God. And, and they kind of want the best of both worlds, right? And what happens? Uh, they fall into this trap of the desires and the pride, and they never come back. And that's the trap. But I know that you guys are different, right? You'll be the different one. Number six, and finally... How many, um, and this is just more like a, an option. You know what? I'm going to stop there. Five, because I kind of went over that. Let's go into verse 17, our final verse for today. <coughs> and so John says this, 
The world, he says two things in verse 17. The world is passing away along with its desires. Number one, number two, whoever does the will of God abides forever. Two things in this final verse. One negative, one positive. Verse 17, he says, the world is passing away along with its desires. This word pass away in verse 17 came from the Greek word parago, parago. And that meant to pass by, to mislead, to disappear, to lack life. So when John says in verse 17, the world is passing away, you contrast that with the second part of verse 17, where he says, doing the will of God, abiding forever, or having life forever. When you connect yourself spiritually to the world, what is happening at a macro level, when you love the world more than you love God, what is happening on a big picture level, verse 17 sums it up, is that you're connecting yourself spiritually to spiritual forces of darkness that are passing away, sucking the life out of you, connecting you spiritually, not to life, but to death, moving you away from the will of God to the will of your own self or the world and so, it, it's, there has to be a connection. There has to be a connection, okay? You see so many people today who are depressed, hopeless, trapped, walking around like lo- the life has been sucked out of them, like an empty shell, like zombies, vampires. And we look at that and say, oh, is it, is it media? We're addicted to media that's done that? Is it, we don't have the right medication, we need to meditate more, we need to turn to psychics and psychedelics and psychiatrics, we've got to fix it all that way. Uh, maybe what's wrong with us as a society? What John is saying right here, he's saying the main reason why we have so much problems in the human soul is because in the end, people have connected themselves to something that is spiritually passing away with its desires. Um, this is, this is Brian Sunday. So I'm going to give another illustration. Um, what was it? Two months ago, uh, there was a movie that came out and it was called Roadrunner. It was a documentary on, um, on Anthony Bourdain. And as you guys know, Anthony Bourdain committed suicide two years ago something like that in France. And uh, I wanted to go see this movie uh, partly because, you know, there's a, you know, the worldly side of me says, oh man, look, Bourdain, he's got the life. He travels, he rides, he eats, you know, and so, but more importantly than that, I want to see it because um, I wanted to see what happened to this man who went from a nobody, a chef in a small restaurant in New York he writes Kitchen Confidential when he was about 40 or so years old. Shoots to skyrocketing fame, one of the well, most recognizable people in the world. And then he falls into despair and commits suicide. That kind of Shakespearean arc. And I want to find out more about that. And so I watched the movie. And, uh, I, I, you know, after I got back, I, was, I, I went and I wrote another excerpt to my book based upon that experience. I'm going to read this to you. It's going to take just a couple of short minutes. But it, I want you to see, uh, because I thought about this verse, verse 17, the world is passing away along with its desires. And I thought about the movie Roadrunner. I'm going to read to you what I'm, I wrote that's going to go into my book. Um, the title of this excerpt, excerpt is called Human, 
exploration sickness in our pursuit of truth and love. Exploration sickness in our pursuit of truth and love. I'll just read it to you. Exploration sickness. It is one of the most damaging things happening to the human soul in an age of spiritual exploration. Exploration sickness happens when we are constantly exploring different truths, but never coming to the truth. It happens when we continually search for love, but never find enduring love. Exploration sickness is not just a byproduct of our anxiety in a society of chaotic change and technological overstimulation. It is not just what happens when your journey takes you on a different direction than you anticipated. Exploration sickness is the result of being a spiritual tourist who is always searching but never finding. Our ability to know almost anything, anytime, and be almost anywhere with anyone, real or virtual, has not ended our search for truth or given us the security of the love we need. Instead, our society looks more like spiritual wanderers and nomads, jumping onto very speeding transports as we escape from place to place. We forget that truth and love were not meant to be things we consume quickly on our commute or inhaled sporadically to reduce stress or introduced into our bloodstreams for the purpose of escaping our world. Truth and love are found only in the context of things that last. The human soul needs right and loving relationship with God and God's people. Those are the things that last. In their absence, we have exploration sickness. We were not meant to be constantly questioning what is real and what is not, or who we should trust or not trust, or who we are or are not. We were not meant to move from relationship to relationship as a way of life, feeling the excitement of newness but having the foreboding sense of angst that we will suffer when it evaporates. I recently watched the movie Roadrunner 2021 in, the, in a theater as a nod to the movie-going experiences of the 20th, 20th century. Roadrunner is a film documenting the journey of an international icon whose life tragically ended when he chose to end it. He was universally recognized as a kind of everyman, one part seeker of truth, one part explorer of the cultures of the world. I wanted to see this movie because I thought it would tell the story of a man who represented either who many of us want to be or who see ourselves as. His lifestyle of travel, 250 days a year, food, 93 different cuisines, storytelling and fame, Emmy and James Beard Awards, is the kind of life many of us dream of having. But I think we were also drawn to him because we saw something of ourselves in him. Not the celebrity part, but the wandering and openness to exploring life in search of answers. Some quotes from the movie I wrote down as I watched. Quote, he was not a travel guide. He experienced things and, and let us figure out. Quote, The ambiguity is what he embraced. Openness is where the answers are. Quote, I have traveled all over the world, but I've never been more happy than when I'm at home being a TV dad just barbecuing so that I can feel normal. Quote, I looked in the mirror and I saw someone worth saving, but no one came to save me. This kind of Shakespearean arc to a movie's storytelling, uh, movie's retelling of his life of obscurity, rise to fame, self-discovery, questioning amidst that self-discovery, loss of relationships, disillusionment, fall, perseverance, grasping for hope, and finally despair. Many of us know the experience of having the world giveth and the world taketh away. When the news broke of his death, people from all around the world were in shock and mourning. It brought a renewed attention to our conversation on mental illness. Some were disillusioned at how a person who seemed to have it all from our perspective saw it differently from his. Others were asking if this was a case of someone who gained the whole world but lost his soul in the process, Matthew 16, 26. For me, it was all of that, 
plus an almost overwhelming sense of sadness for this man. As I sat in the theater and watched two hours of his rise and then descent into madness, I began to feel his exploration sickness. When the movie was coming to its inevitable tragic end, I got up and walked out with 10 minutes left to the end. I've only done that a couple of other times in my life. I think it was because I knew this was a real story and knew how it would end. But more so for me, the movie was symbolic of how many of us suffer today in our search for healing for our souls. He has shared in the past how he did not believe in God or of the God of the Bible or trust him for his salvation. Because of this, I also see this man's journey not just of him giving, not just one of him searching for truth and love, but also of him rejecting it. But I also want, but I wanted for him to find it in the end. When I watched the story and was reminded of how he didn't, I thought of how many of us today are wandering and lost as we search for meaning, hope, and life. The Apostle John, another writer of the, and world traveler in the New Testament, wrote in John chapter 2, verse 15 through 17, and I quoted our verse for today, and then I ended with this. The reason why John warns us here not to love the world more than God is because the world does not want you what the world does not want to love you back the world is not committed to you that is because the spirituality of the world is based not on desire uh, is, is based on desire not on love let me say that again the spirituality of the world is not is based on desire not on love the world wants you to desire what it has to offer you because it desires to use you for its purpose. The world will embrace you, then cast you away and forget you as you pass away with it. Its promise of life is an illusion. The lie becomes more powerful to us than the truth. The moment we believe that the truth, the spiritual life we need is found in the lie and not in the truth. The world is, a, is both a beautiful and empty place, but spiritually it is passing away. The vacancy of God's truth and love in our souls leaves us vacant to whatever a shifting world wants to fill us with. The Apostle John's message to us here is that life is found in God, in Christ, who is the author and source of life for us. Only those who do the will of God find enduring truth and love as they abide in the life-giving relationships that he offers. And. And so to close for this morning, in the last part of verse 17, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Um, That word abide comes from the Greek word meno, remain, abide, dwell, continue, endure. That we who follow the Lord discover the will of God. Church is here to help you discover the will of God. The church is the Lord's vehicle to help you discover the life of God. And the world is here to rob that from you. Um, this week, I, I spent three days here at the GEMS building. And um, no one here, there was no one here, just me. And I would just go up to the second floor, and um, I just spent some time in prayer. And I was thinking about my own life and 
you know, just feeling the temptations of the world in my own life that were threatening to uh, overtake the love of God in me, the desires of the world. And I said, you know, you know what I need? I need to spend time with the Lord. I need to not just beat myself up for my, my failings. Yes, I mean, that, that, that I should be aware of that and, 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 and want to turn from that. But really, what I need is to spend time with the Lord. I need to um, have the love of the Father in me and, um, and spend time with him. And so I, I came across this verse where it says, give thanks in all circumstances. And so I just th- started thanking the Lord for the things that he has given to me in my life. That, because I, I tend to focus on all the things that are going wrong. Or things that are going right in my life, I think, okay, it's going right. When is something going to go wrong now? And I would encourage you with that as well, church. If you're struggling with the love of the world, um, the first step is to come to God and say, Lord, let me recommit my life to you. Let me spend time with you. Your word, prayer, praise, um, doing your work. And as you commit yourself to that, you will find, and I will find, the love of the world will lose its grip on you and me. Let's pray together. Father, as we close, um, as the worship team comes forward, we uh, commit this time of communion to you as well. What a, what a perfect time for us to uh, receive uh, symbolically the shed blood and broken body of Christ. Grace be upon me as I take this act of remembrance. May I be renewed in the love of God and start to see the love of the world as you see it, Lord. And so, Lord, we commit this time. In your name we pray, amen. We close together as the worship team closes us. Um, let's go ahead and, for those of us who follow the Lord, um, let's go ahead and receive communion, and uh, we'll go ahead and close.